Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Nothing to be done. The opening words of the enigmatic play, which has beguiled and mystified audiences since its premiere in a small theatre in Paris 70 years ago this month. By the end of Samuel Beckett's Waiting for Godot, nothing has been done. The mysterious figure for whom the play's two tramps have waited has not arrived, and Estragon and Vladimir have done little else than argue with each other, converse with passers-by, and improvise ways to simply endure the play's two acts. Famously described by Vivian Mercer as a play in which nothing happens twice, Beckett's drama not only showed us how doing nothing can be dramatic, it also dramatised the acute sense of nothingness which pervaded the post-war period during which it was written, and, in its doing of nothing, Waiting for Godot irrevocably changed theatre. Before the success of Godot, Samuel Beckett was a little-known novelist and occasional poet and critic living in Paris, where he had taken up permanent residence in the late 1930s. After the war, he completed the astonishing trilogy of novels Malloy, Malone Dies and The Unnameable, and it was during a hiatus in this series that Beckett, a relative novice in writing for the stage, sat down to compose the work that would make him famous. A distraction, he would later say, from the intense emotional investment demanded by his fiction. Beckett wrote Godot quickly, commencing the play on the 9th of October 1948 in a schoolboy's exercise book and finishing a first draft on the 29th of January. Accustomed to publishers' rejection letters, Beckett had little faith that his new play would ever see a stage. That it finally did owes much to his partner, Suzanne, who tenaciously brought the tattered script to a series of left-bank theatre companies, usually to be curtly dismissed. One director, however, was intrigued enough to ask to meet the playwright. Roger Blinn had directed only a handful of plays, but as an experienced actor... Blinn was fascinated by the music and the music hall quality of Godot's heightened dialogic exchanges and sensed in Beckett's play a new direction in theatre. After two years of obstacles and delays, En Attendant Godot premiered at Le Théâtre de Babylon on Boulevard Raspail on January 5th, 1953. In what was to become a pattern during his career as a playwright, Beckett did not attend the opening night instead sending Suzanne as his envoy and his eyes. From his cottage retreat in the Marne Valley, Beckett inquired about the progress of the production, at one point issuing detailed instructions to Blinn about how Vladimir's trousers should fall in the final moments of the play. One evening in the third week of the play's run, a section of the audience began to jeer during Lucky's gibberish monologue, precipitating a fistfight in the auditorium before the play's detractors stomped out of the theatre, the incident reported on in Le Monde the following day. Beckett was unconcerned when he was informed, but he must have been reminded of the evening he had spent in the Abbey Theatre in Dublin many years previously, when he himself witnessed the audience riot during O'Casey's The Plough and the Stars and Yeats's dramatic defence of the play from the stage. The visceral response to Godot by those who were among the first to see it may have been motivated by what they recognised in it. An important source for the strangely uneventful situation portrayed in the play was Beckett's experience during the Second World War, 
when he and Suzanne, both members of a resistance cell, came to the attention of the Gestapo and were forced to flee Paris. They tramped southward, sleeping rough and scavenging food, before arriving exhausted in the remote hilltop town of Roussillon. There, Beckett worked on local farms in exchange for food, attempted to write, and simply waited with Suzanne for the war to end, experiences alluded to in the absurd dramatic world he would later create. Thus, the nowhereness of waiting for Godot, and the sense that it occurs somehow outside time, was inspired by a very specific time when the world was suspended in the interminable wait for the war to end and for life to return. Vladimir, what do we do now? Estragon, wait. Vladimir, yes, but while waiting. Within days of its opening, performances of Godot were booked out and word began to spread around Europe about this strange play in which nothing happens. The play secured international fame for Beckett, but it also hindered at times the dramatic career which it facilitated. Disputes over performance rights and frustrations with productions impinging on the writing of new work. Yet, Godot remained an important personal touchstone for Beckett. Unlike many other manuscripts which he gifted to friends and institutions, he never parted with the small copybook in which he wrote his most famous work. To questions of what the play might mean, however, or who Godot might be, he remained characteristically reticent. I am no longer part of it, he once wrote. Estragon, Vladimir, Pozzo, Lucky. I have only been able to know a little about them by staying very far away from the need to understand. They owe you an explanation, perhaps. Let them get on with it, without me. They and I have settled our accounts. Getting sick was no joke in my younger days. You'd have to be bad to brave the bear pit that was the dispensary with its peeling pink walls and workhouse air. A place where the maimed and afflicted shuffled on hard wooden benches when the doctor bellowed the dreaded next. Before he made any gruff or dismissive pronouncements, The women I sat amongst communicated their diagnostics in a series of theatrical eye movements as some poor devil hacked his coughing fits into a dirty handkerchief. The eye language indicated that the san awaited him, the dreaded sanatorium where TB would ravage to a yellow decline. We knew that the poor devils who tried to quell the shakes were probably there to plead with a doctor to pay a dangerously overdue ESB bill, which, harsh and all as he was, he sometimes did. The Jubilee nurse, with her harshly dyed black hair, was an equally forbidding prospect. We douse our leg ulcers with all sorts of homemade concoctions. 
we'd poultice ominous black ridges from our skin with wads of bread in boiling water to avoid the sight of her green anglia pulling up outside our gate. Once, my father even used caustic soda to burn away some worrisome wart. A stay in hospital was to be avoided at all costs. How could we manage in those places of hierarchical disdain presided over by our betters, where frosty figures in starched and forbidding uniforms looked down their noses at us? Our reluctance to subject ourselves to the chill derision evident in hospitals meant that we were reliant on over-the-counter treatments. Certain medicines with a cure-all reputation had a very high premium. Beecham's pills, those little yellow pellets palmed routinely into the mouth at bedtime, were in every kitchen cabinet. The adverts of the 60s featured on a weekly basis in Ireland's own, described how these little yellow bullets, while chiefly used as a laxative, could also dislodge bile, stir up the liver, remove disease and even help with female complaints. Those little cylindrical containers of magic were on the shopping list every pension day. Zambuk too was a mainstay in the medicine chest of the poor. This green daub of antiseptic ointment, astringent with eucalyptus and camphor, came in a little circular tin, assuring us that the ointment was indeed the real Makoya, as it was referred to in the dialect of the South African township where it was first made. As a child, I'd watch my mother's foot care routine with fascination. She'd spread sheets of newspaper on the floor, pour Dettol into a basin of water, finding evident reassurance when the water clouded. This brought the promise of freedom from the pain of bunions and corns, an affliction that often saw her cut holes in her shoes to bring a bit of relief. Her feet softened in the Dettol water, She'd slip the blade from my father's razor and bravely hack at corns and calluses with meticulous concentration. Nowadays, when I extend my feet to some remote white-coated professional and watch as she arrays sterilised podiatry instruments on a steel tray, I secretly want to tell her to dispense with the science, fill a basin with cloudy Dettol water, pair with a razor blade and slather on the Zambuk. Aspros were our ubiquitous cure-all. The adverts of the time featured an earnest chap called Young Dixon. This ambitious young cove, with the adverts assured us, a real flair for electronics, often found himself one degree under. A condition that led to the colds and flus treacherous in their potential to jeopardise his chances. Like the Dixon chap, we kept a plentiful supply of Aspros to hand whenever the scratchy nose or fits of sneezing threatened to pull us under. The Ireland's own of the day also assured us that nervous trouble, including blushing and shyness, would be taken care of with a simple home remedy forwarded in a discreet plain envelope 
by a Mr Rivers of Holborn, London. While a Mr Ross, a height specialist, could, for a very modest fee, forward a series of exercises to increase our height by up to eight inches. I'm getting to the age now where I'm very grateful not to be dealing with serious illness. But if the time comes and some patrician consultant steeples his fingers before making dread pronouncements, I leave him in no doubt that he's dealing with a hardy snipe from the 60s. The era may have been all about the Beatles and free love for others, but for us, that stalwart old reliable Ireland's own, still on the go since 1902, assured us of the curative properties of Beecham's pills, Aspros and Zambuck, not to mention the cures discreetly dispatched in plain brown envelopes for those delicate and personal conditions. All sorts of medicines that you can buy No matter what ailment you've got But I know a special one you ought to try You'll find it the best of the lot It's me Auntie Maggie's homemade remedy It's guaranteed never to Ventotene is a tiny island 25 nautical miles off the west coast of Italy. And Santo Stefano is an even smaller island, little more than a rock, that lies a few hundred metres away from it. Ventotene has been a prison island since the time of Augustus Caesar, but in 1797 the Bourbon kings of Naples decided to build a high-security prison on Santo Stefano. Historically, the two islands formed a prison complex with varying grades of punishment. The prison they built on Santo Stefano was a particularly harsh one. The vast majority of the men sent there served what in Italian is known as ergastolo, meaning a literal life sentence, spent constantly in chains and often under torture. Once you set foot on the island, you knew you would be buried there. Weirdly, the prison is modelled on the Naples Opera House, the Teatro San Carlo, one of the most famous opera houses in the world. Except that in the prison, the boxes are the cells and the stage is the place from which the guard watches. It's a remarkable inversion of purpose, even a perverse one, given that many of the prisoners would have been well-to-do Neapolitan rebels sentenced to die here, carefully observed in the place where they had once been the audience. Based on the principles outlined by Jeremy Bentham in his book Panopticon, a description of the perfect prison as he saw it, the cells are constructed in such a way that a single guard can observe every single cell, or at least, as Bentham argues, the prisoners believe they can be watched by one guard, which amounts to the same thing from the point of view of prison discipline. In Bentham's ideal prison, the guard is in a tower at the centre, but the Bourbons opted for a design with which they were already familiar, hence the guard on what would have been the stage of the opera house. Mussolini locked up his political enemies on Ventotene, some on the main island and some in the high-security prison of Santo Stefano. 
The socialist and future much-loved President of Italy, Sandro Pertini, for example, spent the years 1935 to 1943 on Ventotene. He was eventually released when the Americans took the island, a story well told by George Steinbeck in his memoir, Once There Was a War. Steinbeck himself was there as a war correspondent accompanying the American unit which captured the island, led by the actor Douglas Fairbanks Jr. Perhaps thanks to Fairbanks' acting skills, he managed to persuade the German garrison that a vastly superior force had landed and they surrendered without firing a shot. Steinbeck wrote that they had captured the island accidentally and with five kinds of luck. During the war, the communist prisoner Altiero Spinelli sat down in his cabin on the island to imagine a future Europe united and at peace, a remarkable achievement for a man banished by fascism to such a remote place and in the midst of a conflict that was tearing Europe apart. His Ventotene Manifesto, was smuggled out and published by the German anti-fascist Ursula Hirschmann and went on to become the founding document of the European Union. But for an Irish connection, we need only visit the little bookshop in the island's only piazza. Called Ultima Spiaggia, the last beach, the owner, Fabio, is a huge fan of Irish music and Christy Moore in particular. And when I last visited, he told me that he was trying to persuade Christy to come and sing on the island. If it were to happen, it would be a mighty session, and the location, with all its history, would be perfect for Christie. And there's a second Irish connection, for which we must look to a famous prisoner from a previous century. Luigi Settembrini has a special place in Italian hearts. He was a professor at the University of Naples, who was inspired by the revolutionary impulse that was sweeping Europe in the mid-1800s. He published a scathing attack on the King of Naples and the result was that he was condemned to life imprisonment on Santo Stefano. After much international agitation on his behalf, he was eventually banished to America, but the prisoners hijacked the ship and directed it to Cork. The actual landfall was recorded in his famous book Ricordanza della Mia Vita as follows. On March the 6th, we landed at Queenstown, in the harbour of Cork. Full stop. The next sentence is about London. A bad blow for a Corkman like me. What did Settembrini think of the banks of my own lovely Lee? We'll never know. However, we know from other sources that the deportees of whom there were 67 men, one woman and two children, kissed the ground when they landed in Cove. They declared themselves political refugees immediately. It's fascinating to think that Settembrini and his associates were welcomed enthusiastically when they got to England as patriots and fighters for liberty, having arrived in the kingdom through the same port from which a mere ten years earlier Irish patriots and fighters for liberty like John Mitchell and Thomas Francis Marr had been deported to the penal colonies of Australia. It's especially poignant when one considers that the organisation founded by Mitchell and Marr and so promptly suppressed by that same welcoming English government was called Young Ireland. Their rebellion took place in the same year as the Neapolitan Rebellion, 1848, and that they were directly influenced by Giuseppe Mazzini's thinking and his organisation, Young Italy. History has more than its share of ironies. 
When my two younger sisters were in Dublin recently for a brief visit, I clicked into older sister mode. They booked an apart hotel in the city centre and after 14 years living in the capital, I proudly gave them some local tips. On their final day, we ate brunch in a restaurant where the high ceilings made it feel like we were in a loud and buzzing festival tent. Though the price of a chai latte made me splutter, it was a relief to be in such an energetic place not so long after Covid had kept the city quiet. When we headed back to their accommodation, I led the way up the newly pedestrianised Capel Street, now wide and welcoming to wanderers like us. But when I went to turn right, my siblings steered left, and I realised I was a clueless older sister after all. I hadn't even known the hotel they were staying in existed. We entered a neat new build that I'd never registered before, one of the many fresh hotels which have appeared around town over the past few years. It felt like this one had been dropped on the spot overnight, fully formed and with guests inside. I now had to recalibrate my sense of that part of the north side to replace what I once knew with this newcomer in its boutique rooms, floor-to-ceiling windows and tasteful signage. The hotel was pretty, but I felt like we could have been anywhere in Europe. The only sign we were in Dublin was the white, textured facade of the Hacienda pub across the street, an institution that's weathered many economic storms. A few months before that, I went for a drink with a colleague in the Liberties. On our way up Francis Street afterwards, we shared an unexpected moment of confusion in the summer dusk. At the top of the street was a grey building, with mid-century furniture and soft lighting visible beyond its large windows. I couldn't locate it on my mental map of Dublin, yet I knew I'd been in that spot many times before. And indeed I had, because until a few years ago, this new apart hotel was the Tivoli, a long-running venue that, by the time I started frequenting it, wore an air of impending dereliction. The floors were sticky with old beer spills, its outer walls a millefeuille of graffiti. I went to cinema screenings and DJ sets there and enjoyed a glittering, bombastic gig by the musician Perfume Genius, accompanied by a much-missed friend who has since gone back to Australia. Now this place full of memories had been erased – I wondered if, while tucked up in their cosy hotel beds, some of the visitors in this replacement building would hear ghostly beats pulsing in their sleepy ears. The clanging alarms telling me Dublin is changing keep coming my way. Swiping through Instagram stories one idle evening, I saw a photograph on a friend's account that made me wince. It was of the place I'd known as Crawdaddy, a venue in an old train station dating back to 1859 on Harcourt Street, as a young music journalist, I interviewed bands at Crawdaddy. As a fan, I watched beloved acts and up-and-comers play in the tiny venue. It held a special meaning for me as, when I was 18, I brought my younger brother there to see the Irish band JJ72 play. While I'd felt very grown-up bringing him on my own to a strange city, I was so naive that we stayed in an airport hotel, an expensive 30-minute taxi ride from the venue. Now, instead of gig posters... On the front of Crawdaddy was a sign announcing the imminent arrival of a Pret-a-Manger cafe. And next door to the former Crawdaddy, what used to be the tripod venue, is being advertised for rent under the name Station Building 2. Soon, the feet of office workers will stroll over a former dance floor. You might say don't get too attached to bricks and mortar, but locations where culture blossomed will always remain meaningful to the people who use them because they understand buildings' value isn't just something to be expressed in euro signs. Stumbling across a gig venue only to realise it has been replaced 
feels like a sledgehammer has obliterated the energy and art once created behind its doors. I know my peers and I are not the first or last generation to watch places we loved disintegrate, left alive only in photographs and memories. But it doesn't mean the changes don't hurt. I know too that the new hotels will provide memories to the people who stay there, and I hope they find their own treasured spots as they explore the city. Time will continue to peel back and add layers to the city where I live, but there will always be, for me, a ghost version of the capital, hovering just above the newly constructed bedrooms and foyers, filled with dance floors and stages that I will never see again. She broke the rule, she hurt him hard This time he will break down She's lost his trust and so she must All is lost The system has broke down Romance has broke down This boy is cracking up I turned 70 a while ago. For most people nowadays, reaching 70 is not that significant. But for me, having spent a lot of my childhood in hospital, it was akin to a minor miracle. From about the age of four, I couldn't digest solid food and frequently woke up at night with a pain in my belly, calling to my mother for a hot drink. Only when I became a parent myself did I realise and appreciate the effort it took for her to meet my impatient demand. Getting out of bed, warming milk on a dormant turf fire, adding a pinch of soda. This frothy mixture eased my pain, but the underlying condition persisted. Travellers from Belmullet to Castlebar know only too well that the R312 was, and is still, a mere tarmacked, meandering sheep track. I first experienced this road in the back of an ambulance in the early 1950s, bouncing up and down from pothole to pothole, lurching from side to side like a drunken giraffe. Going from farm and turf fire smells to the chloroform-laden air of the county hospital was a sickening shock to my system. Worse still was the fear generated by the rattle of the medicine trolley which the nurses wheeled round the ward every morning and evening. My fists would unclinch and my heart would stop racing only when that noisy horse passed my bed without stopping. In those days, an injection needle was a fearsome object, more suitable for equine use than inserting into the thin thigh of an emaciated six-year-old boy. Merlin Park Hospital in Galway was my home for much of the next six years. The combined efforts of our gifted GP, Dr Tom Kelly, and the skill of his friend and surgeon, Mr Neefsey, correctly diagnosed my problem, a collapsing esophagus. Their solution was innovative. Replace the faulty section of my esophagus with a piece of my colon. Great in theory, But such an operation had never been done before in Ireland, and I was too small and weak for such major surgery. Undeterred, 
Mr. Nefsi came up with an ingenious interim plan. He would insert a solid tube down my esophagus every morning to open it and allow food travel down into my stomach. He did this while placing me under mild sedation for a couple of weeks. Then he moved to the next stage, do it without sedation. Surgical notes made at the time describe the patient, that's me, as being uncooperative during this procedure. Coincidentally, my father came to visit me at that time and he was informed by a junior doctor that I had bitten his finger that morning. Mr. Neefsey and his junior doctor persisted, and after some weeks I was allowed home with this wonder weapon, a solid, flexible tube about 30 inches long, which by now I had learned to push down my throat every morning. I became so proficient at this manoeuvre that it could have become my circus act. I spent some Christmases in hospital, Missing my family was eased considerably by visits from the hospital Santa, who seemed to have access to a wider range of gifts than the Belmullet version. And there were fun times too. At supper time, the nurses allowed me to drive the snack trolley from ward to ward at a speed that nearly turned the milk into butter. Beside each bed was a four-wheel trolley, One ward had a large open space in the middle, ideal for trolley races. New patients didn't stand a chance against me, the veteran Formula One trolley driver. Some minor injuries were added to our underlying conditions. There were no children's wards in Merlin Park. Sometimes I was on the orthopaedic corridor, where in those days patients were often confined to bed for long periods. I became their messenger boy, fetching drinks and sharing newspapers and cigarettes. Yes, cigarettes. My reward for this service was to help them reduce the hill of grapes on their bedside lockers. In those years, parents seldom visited children in hospital. It was believed that such visits could be too upsetting. Furthermore, Bad roads and infrequent journeys beyond the local town meant that travelling from Belmullet to Galway was as daunting for the older generation as a round-the-world trip might be today. Thus I became the happily adopted child of patients, nurses and ancillary staff. After about a year at home, performing my circus act with the magic tube every morning and gaining weight and strength, I was recalled to Merlin Park, where Mr. Neefsey successfully performed his groundbreaking operation. Now, more than 60 years later, I begin each meal with a silent thank you to Dr. Kelly, Mr. Neefsey, and all the unsung heroes of the medical professions, both then and now. In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun, and snap! The job's a game. And every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark, a spree. It's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, the medicine go down, medicine. 
down just a Go, said the bird. I was standing, still, just inside the gate, holding the echo of some yelp or call I could not identify, somewhere from the larches and clustering pines, a cry that seemed to hang on the air, like a messenger's whose speech was garbled and incomprehensible. I was seeking, as always, some form of sanctuary for the dithering fancies of the mind. When I looked up, startled by a croak bass-toned and ragged, and saw the bird, wide-winged, lethargic, its iterated, irritating caw commonplace and dreary, as it flopped gawkily down onto the parapet, closed its wings and posed like a dusty old parson, Heron. The water that came streaming down the culvert was shallow, sluggish, and the high brick wall of the reservoir was marbled a slimy green. I sensed the baleful cobra eye of the charcoal-dark preacher fixed on me, alien to his territory, till he flapped up with an impatient squawk and dropped more cautiously to the edge of water, then stabbed down at some living thing. A breeze, teasing from the pine trees, seemed to waken me, and that old arcane dread of portents eased away from me. Suddenly a deer, small and fleeing, leapt from the trees, and I knew from the yapping of a foolish, hearth-trained lapdog a human presence was somewhere by. Omen, I thought, but only a moment. I have learned that the dead will not speak to the living. Between us the gulf is of depthless fire, death to cross. So I turned from the culvert and made my way, calmly, back downhill towards the gate. On this morning's programme we heard Nothing Doing, 70 Years Waiting for Godot by Alan Graham. Rude Good Health by Margaret Galvin. The Prisoners of Ventanae by William Wall. Living in a Ghost City by Aoife Barry. Merlin Park Miracle was by Liam Lally. And Go, Said the Bird, a poem by John F. Dean. The music was Variations on the Carnival of Venice by Paganini, played by Joshua Bell on violin, with Simon Mulligan on piano. Auntie Maggie's Remedy by George Formby. Verdi's Chorus of the Hebrew Slaves, performed by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and Chorus, under conductor George Solti. Old Town by Jimmy Bain and Phil Linnett, in a version by Mongoose. And a spoonful of sugar from The Sound of Music, sung by Julie Andrews. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the producer is Sarah Binchy. To listen back to this week's programme, go to the RTE Radio Player or rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday Miscellany. And you can follow us on, on Facebook, on Twitter and all the usual podcast platforms. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.